We're in Matthew chapter 18. And I know that uh, I I know that I need the help of the Holy Spirit as I seek to deliver the message this morning. And I know that you need the help of the Holy Spirit to receive uh, the words of the message this morning. And my heart's desire is that God's word would be that which speaks to us and not uh, the opinion of of a man or men. And that is the burden of my heart. That's the way that I have prepared and trust that our God will answer the petitions that have been put up before him, not only by me, but by many of you as well. Let's go ahead and read the passage of Scripture here that we're going to be dealing with. I'm planning at least to take a couple of weeks on this portion, verses 15 through 20. I would say that really the the idea that Jesus is dealing with here uh, runs all the way to the end of the chapter. The, you can't really separate them in one sense because it all sort of goes together, but um, but it's not all dealing with exactly the same thing or the way of dealing with things in the same way. So <clears throat> we will be uh, obviously breaking uh, the, uh, the, the the passage up. Moreover, Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector or a heathen and a publican. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, It will be done for them by my Father in heaven, where two or three are gathered together in my name. I am there in the midst of them. Amen. And so Jesus begins with the word moreover, or the translation is anyway, moreover. And that's a conjunction indicating that Jesus is adding to what he has just said. He's continuing, really, the thought in some way. It's related. The disciples, of course, have been warned in the previous verses from the beginning of this chapter against being instruments to cause other believers in particular to stumble into sin or to stumble away from that simple childlike faith in Jesus and devotion to Him. Something that we must be careful that we don't do as we relate to one another. In other words, our effect, our effect on others matters. It doesn't just matter, it matters to Jesus. Because it, it is an effect upon those 
whom he loves and those whom the father loves. Though there are, it's an effect upon his brethren. He's called little children in the passage here. And so we need to think of that in our relationships. He cares for every single one of the little ones that make up his kingdom. Every single one. Sometimes people, I've had seen people, heard people speak as they've come into our church in the past, especially years ago, but I've heard people say, you know, I don't think I would fit with this church. You guys are too holy. You, you guys are too, you're above us. You're above me. Well, brethren, that may be, that may be an interpretation coming from a wrong, just something wrong in their thinking. We should never, ever put off that kind of air about us as a church to believers and really to anyone, but to believers. We need to care how we project ourselves to others and especially pastors who are given the responsibility under Christ to care for the flock. We and I think that's what he's specifically speaking to in these previous Verses in verses 10 through 14, and maybe even before, the apostles being leaders of the church. But he reminds them that the Father loves his little children, and not one of them will perish. And so we need to be careful that we're not causing a problem for those little ones. They may stray. But he promised, the good shepherd that he is, that he will seek and he will find. And he oftentimes uses us in that process, doesn't he? As pastors, but not only pastors, as fellow believers in seeking those who may wander away. In verse 15 then, he's continuing. Moreover, he speaks now directly to our relationships within the community of believers. We who are members one of another in Christ, you know that's our relationship. Members one of another in Christ. And we're joined together in churches. Now, that's not a very developed thought at this point in the ministry of Jesus. That gets more developed as the New Testament progresses. And Lord willing, next week, I I believe I'm going to spend maybe a little time um, stating some things that many of you already know, but some, especially those who have been visiting with us, may not know. I may not be so clear on, and I want it to be clear, and that is the very nature of what the church is. I'm not going to go into great detail with it, but I want to spend a bit more time with it because it's a part of this passage here. Now, we can expect the world to sin against us. True? You shouldn't be shocked if the world, unbelievers, even family members, sin against you. But what do we do when our own brother or sister in Christ sins against us? In some sense, that ought not shock us either. It certainly doesn't shock Jesus. Otherwise, he wouldn't be saying what he's saying here. So it's something that probably is going to happen. Of course, this passage here, by the way, not just verse 15, but all the way to the end. I mean, get down to verse 35. He says, so my heavenly father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother's trespass. So this is a a passage about this idea of dealing with sins in relationships against one another. This passage, especially verses 15 through 17 
is famously known as our guide for church discipline. And so when people talk about church discipline, they race to verses 15 through 17. I've, I've grown to sort of cringe at that a little bit because while there is no doubt there is that in this passage, I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't like the almost gloating that there is in some that this is what we get to do. I don't believe Jesus is guiding us through a process of how to get rid of a problem child in the church. I know there's a lot said about church discipline, especially in uh, circles that we fellowship in. And it is a missing part of many professing churches in our day. No question about that. So anything goes in a church. But the idea is not take these steps in order to remove an erring member. In fact, the goal is to avoid that. That's the goal. The purpose is not to drive a brother away. It is to win him. It's to restore a loss. That's the goal. And this is love in action. I was reading in a different context. A person said, sometimes our theology, the things that we say, don't match our practosology. You know, we, we can talk about something, but then we look at our practice and it doesn't measure up. Sometimes grace is a big deal. We make a lot of grace, but we're not very gracious. That, that's kind of the, the point. We, we need our practice to match our our doctrine, and that's what Jesus is driving at here. I think most of us will agree that Jesus' instruction here is difficult to follow. I find it difficult. We prefer in the flesh to either ignore sin or one who sins against us. Just sort of dismiss it. And we call that love. Or pounce on a sinning brother or sister with unrestrained judgment in the name of keeping the church pure. Both are wrong. Both attitudes are wrong. The love of Christ is not like that. Where his love abounds, love for one another abounds. And we are moved with compassion and care for one another, even toward those who sin Against you. I'm going to refer to this passage as we work through to the end of Matthew 18, but I'll read it to you now. This is Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, longsuffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another... It doesn't even say a sin, just a complaint. Even as Christ forgave you, so you also, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. But the potential 
of division between believers because of sin is real. And Jesus addresses reality. And sometimes reality is kind of ugly. Now, in Christ, our relationship to sin has changed. We, we, we just sang some songs that talked about that. Under no condemnation, right? And, and our relationship to sin, it's no longer the driving force in our life. But it still dogs us and can cause relational problems. And what it does in relational matters, it interrupts the experience of unity. It does not break the unity we have in Christ by the Spirit, but it interrupts the experience. Experience of unity, which, by the way, is what Ephesians is driving at in, in Ephesians chapter four. Endeavor to keep the unity. You got it already by the Spirit in Christ, but you have to keep it. You have to experience it. And I believe later on in chapter four, when he says, grieve not the Holy Spirit, that's the context in which he says that. And when we are not experiencing unity because of sin in our relationships, we're grieving the Holy Spirit. And that's a whole subject in itself. But if we're walking in the Spirit, we will confront sins that break relationships, that create division. If we're walking in the Spirit. You see, our presentation of Christ as a church in this world requires expressions of love in relationships that are different from the world. And by the way, we have unbelievers among us, our children who are growing up. They, they need to see the expressions of this in, our, in us. As we... We must purpose as much as lies within us to live in peace and, re, and resolve any sin-caused division. By the way, let me just insert here, we're not just talking about relationships with people outside of our homes in the church. You know, um, you know, Gabino, I'm, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to deal with you according to the terms of the text here. But if my wife were a believer and she's in the church too, does that same thing apply to her? My relationship to her, does it? Isn't it interesting how that we, we take scripture, we, if our brother sin against us, well that, that's, that, by the way, brother or sister, our, our brethren, brother, that applies to people outside of my home relationship. But no, if your wife or husband is a believer, your children are believers, that applies to you in the home. Not just non-family relations. And I think that's important to keep in mind because in Community Baptist Church, there are conflicts between spouses, and the spouses seem to think that it's okay. I mean, unresolved conflicts. <laughs> We're like sandpaper, aren't we, <laughs> with each other. But I'm talking about unresolved conflicts. We can't have that, not according to Jesus. And there's a good reason for that. So today, let's think through the process that Jesus gives us that, if followed, will resolve most sin-caused conflicts among God's born-again ones. And I, and I say, if followed, and, and this is not complicated. It really isn't. We can complicate it if we want to. But it's not real complicated. 
And sometimes we're, we're, we're so legalistic in our minds, we want the steps fleshed out in further detail. But remember, if you have the Spirit of Christ, you're being led of the Spirit to apply the principles that are given, right? So you don't need a, a potentate. You don't need a man. Adding to the commandments, you know, adding to what, what Jesus says. We can take what He says and we can... Follow it in the spirit of love that it is intended. So the problem that Jesus addresses is specific here. Now, there are, there are, there are many other kinds of sin. There are personal sins. There, there, there are times that I am weeping in my own prayer time over something that has been exposed within me that has nothing to do with anyone else. Right? And, and I, when I say I weep, it's because I, I don't like what I see. And I'm, and I'm putting it up before God who forgives me, right? But I don't need to make that known to anyone else. Here, the sin is between believers, especially in this context, I believe, the application can be beyond this, but especially in your church. So here the matter is private sin against you. The text says, moreover, Jesus says, moreover, if your brother sins against you. Now, some of your translations are going to say, moreover, if your brother sins, nothing more. And they leave out against you because they say that uh, there are some manuscripts where it doesn't. Anyway, I don't agree with that conclusion. It should be there. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, one of the the internal evidence that I would give you that that's what he's talking about. Skip down to verse 21. After Jesus says what he says, Peter comes to him and says, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me? So that's the point. And I forgive him up to seven times. So that's the point. It's sinning against you. So this is not just any sin or a a public and flagrant sin, such as is addressed in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. The focus here is sins that are personal against one another that you know about, but nobody else knows about. Now, keep in mind, it is only matters that are truly sin against you that are in view here. Truly sins. Sin is the issue, not disagreements. Disagreements are not a sin. Even though the disagreements may make you uncomfortable or tense with someone, that doesn't qualify. It's sin. Sin is the issue, not hurt feelings. Hurt feelings may or may not be a result of sin against you, but remember this, don't forget, love is not quick to take offense. Don't forget that part of the equation as well. Okay. Doesn't mean there won't be an offense. But the offense is not just, I feel bad about fill in the blank. And by the way, it may be. And I say, say especially, it depends on how close the relationship, especially if it's husband and wife, is something that you may want to address, but that's not a church, that's, that doesn't fit into this equation here of what Jesus is dealing with. 
Here the issue is not your feelings. It's your brother's sins against you. Your feelings are not the criteria to determine someone else's sin. Did you hear that? Your feelings are not the criteria to determine someone else's sin. Sin is the issue, not opinions. So I think she's bitter toward me. I think he's angry. I I think he or she is proud. I, I think he or she is selfish. I think... Well, you may, out of genuine loving concern, uh, did you hear that genuine loving concern, speak to a brother or sister who seems affected by those sins that I just mentioned. But that's not the point here. Sin is the issue. Not speculation. Here, Jesus is addressing something obvious. A definable, verifiable Outward and serious word or act that is against you. That has caused a loss of relationship. The word gain and win is is critical here. In fact, earlier in Matthew, it's probably helpful. Jesus has kind of addressed this from a little different angle earlier in Matthew chapter 5. When he says, therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you. Here, it's not. It's You remember that your brother believes that you have sinned against them. And so it's kind of like Jesus covers both sides here. So you remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First, be reconciled. Now, that's the idea of winning and gaining reconciled. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So this is a a matter that is that serious. It's a specific sin. Against you that cannot be overlooked without harming the relationship. The relationship matters. It matters to Jesus. Now, we know that love covers a multitude of sins, but it doesn't ignore all sins. That's not what covers there means, that it just ignores all sins. Some sins can't be ignored. So Jesus has in view this kind of sin. It needs to be confronted. And why? What's the purpose? We've suggested it. Already, what's the goal? What are we trying to accomplish in confronting relational sins? Well, not simply to point out a wrong or to prove that you are right. That's a rotten attitude. There has been a loss in relationship and you covet that relationship because you are in Christ. With You, You notice he says, moreover, if your brother sins against you. And God's love in you will not let you be satisfied. The sinning brother or sister needs help. Assuming that it's, that it's true what you're thinking and sensing. Or the judgment that you have come to. And so the purpose is to gain your brother. It's restoration. It's reconciliation. This is the goal. And don't lose sight of this. All through verse 15, 16, and 17, do not lose sight of this goal. This is 
This is what we're aiming after. It's not to tar and feather someone because you don't like them or whatever. That it has nothing to do with that. The primary emphasis here is restoring a broken relationship caused by by what? By sin. This is not simply a matter of drifting apart. You know, we used to be so close. What's wrong? That's not that doesn't fit here. That's not what this is about. It's not it's not about personality differences. I don't know why I can't get along with you. You know, maybe there is no definitive thing. Maybe it's just you get along better with some than others. Jesus had an inner circle, didn't he? Of but they were all his his disciples. It's not about your comfort level. This is sin that has caused division. And so love for Christ and your brother in Christ. Boy, that's fundamental. And then the desire for unity in the church. The Maybe I should say it this way, not just unity, but the experience of unity in the church. And then reflecting your desire to reflect Christ in the world. These are all godly motivators for doing all we can to restore what is broken. In other words, this is bigger than you. This is bigger than any one person or any one relationship. The church is affected. And we'll probably say more about that next week. But look at the process. The process that Jesus gives. And that really is what you see here in verses 15 through 17. As we're aiming for this purpose, for this goal of reconciliation with one who has sinned against me. I I think you get the point already, but I'll just say it. This is not a mechanical, legalistic process. It's not step one, two, three, you're out. There is all along the way... This heart, if your heart is right, and the heart of the church is right. All along the way, the heart is restoration, reconciliation. So what do you do when a fellow believer sins against you? Do you brood over it? Do you replay it in your mind? Over? See, if you have a heart of forgiveness, you can't do that. Even if forgiveness has not technically been granted, you still cannot you're sinning against god when you are brooding over it and brethren that happens far too much in our in our feeble minds okay and i'm not saying that to beat anybody up or to beat myself up i'm just saying it is so unhealthy for you spiritually unhealthy for you it really is dishonoring to god we can't do that are we to just write the person off? Or would he give them a cold shoulder? Think about that in your homes, husbands and wives. How many times I, in counseling I hear this? And I, I, over the years, you know, and all of us have experienced it. You know, and you know, we, we say to a person, well, what's wrong? Well, you should know. Husband, I mean, uh, folks in the home, have you, have you noticed that? It's like, you know, you, you should be more perceptive than, okay, maybe I should, but I, I don't know. I, what, what is it? Giving somebody the cold shoulder is not the way to deal with sin. You're sinning when you do that. 
What about railing on the person? Maybe that. Tell someone else about it. Is that what you should do? Post it on Facebook. Of course not. None of those choices fit the action of love. And so Jesus gives us three clear, specific steps to be taken. Motivated by a heart toward restoring what is broken. That's the goal. What's the first thing? And sometimes this is, you know, some of us are so familiar with these steps, as we call them, that we sort of just race right through them without really pondering them. He says in verse 15, go, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Just the two of you. That's it. Don't assume the other person knows. You and him or her alone. He says, go. He doesn't say wait. He doesn't say wait for them to come to you. He says, go. You, the one sinned against. You initiate it. But I, I, didn't, I didn't do anything. They're the ones who did it. Jesus knows that. By the way, isn't this really a reflection of our God? Think about it. Who made the first move? Who sinned against who? It was we, humanity, sinning against God. And God didn't say, you make the first move. He came to you. And me. And we are simply reflecting God and what we know of God when we act this way. Go and tell Him His fault. And that's what God does to us. What does the Holy Spirit do? What is one of His loving ministries, really, is to convict us. By the way, that's the word here when He says, Go and tell him his fault between you. It's, 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 it's translated with several words, but it is that word that's translated elsewhere in Scripture as convict, reprove, rebuke. It's translated in all of those ways. Tell him his fault. The idea is to call him to account. It's to be specific. It's to be pointed. It's to name the sin in such a way that it's not nebulous, so it can, but so that it can be identified and dealt with. Generalizations won't help. Character assassination won't help. Remember, the issue is the sin against you. It's not a, a catalog of things. It's very specific. And it's not, I feel like such and such. It's, this is the sin against me. And I want you to know. I want you to see it. Because it has caused a problem between us. 
And don't go to a, to a person speaking to them as the judge and the executioner. But truly desire reconciliation. He says, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. That, that's the goal. And so you must remember humility as you go to this Brother or sister in Christ, remember back in verse 4, therefore whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And so the kingdom of heaven and those who are in the church ought to be made up of a lot of little children who have this humility. Sometimes we lack it and we need to be reminded of that. And so we, we need to, we need to remember we need to be walking in the spirit and the spirit produces this humility. Galatians 6.1, I think, is helpful here, brethren. If a man is overtaken in any trespass, and while the specific thing that Paul is writing about here may not be exactly uh, parallel with what Jesus is talking about, the principle is very applicable. If a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such an one in a spirit of gentleness, meekness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. And so I would remind you that this is something that we need to prayerfully approach. One of the reasons is this, because if I'm going to go to someone else, and, and, and if you're a Christian, you've, you've had the experience, either someone coming to you or you going to someone else. And if we're going to do that, we've got to make sure that we don't have a beam in our own eye, Right? Because if you have a beam in your own eye, you will not see clearly and you will likely do more damage than good in your attempt to set the person straight. You're going to just bloody them up. You're going to, it's not going to, you're not going to accomplish the desired goal of reconciliation at all. And by the way, they're going to feel that big hunk of wood you're slamming against them. And so remove the beam out of your own eye. Make sure that you're seeing clearly. Make sure that you're going with the right spirit. Make sure your own heart is right. Make sure as much as you can know that you are confronting with a spirit of genuine love. I appreciated what I read in Leviticus 19 verses 16 through 18. You shall, you shall not go about as a talebearer, a slanderer, among your people, nor shall you take a stand against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. That's not what's driving you. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor. And not bear sin because of him, not just ignore the sin. It's almost as if you are complicit with the sin when you simply ignore it and you know about it. You shall not take vengeance. Nor bear any grudge. Against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's Leviticus nineteen sixteen through 18. I am the Lord, he says, I am the Lord. By the way, who is the Lord? He, he, he is love. 
And that's what he's saying to you and to me. We should be acting as he has toward us. So you're not self-absorbed. You can't be. When you're going to a brother who has sinned against you or sister who has sinned against you, you must deny yourself to confront with a sincere desire to gain your brother. Do you really want restoration? That really is the question. Do you really have that desire? And so you go. And he says, Jesus says, if he hears you, you have gained your brother. If he hears you. Now, that's not just simply if he hears the words, but if he hears you, the implication is he understands, he acknowledges the sin and he responds. There is some level of agreement. And I don't even think he's saying exact agreement. Let's not get so technical. There is no way anybody can, you know, can can be reconciled to you. Right. Forgiveness is granted and forgiveness is granted only by those who have a heart to forgive. If that happens, he says, you've gained your brother. You can experience unity again. Now, most matters should be resolved at this stage, assuming that both parties have a right spirit. Right. Now, that should be as far as it goes. In fact, no one else knows about it. Peace is restored and the matter never goes public. Nobody else in the church knows anything about it. Boy, what a joy that would be. That often is not the case, though, in church life. But this is the most desirable. And I would suggest to you, That if you're one who has spread the sin of another to others, then you have become guilty of something that needs to be addressed. But but the goal here, the reason I say that is not just tit for tat and, oh, you did that, well then you did that. And then we end up with just a, a huge explosion of strife and contention in the church. Listen, the goal is unity, the experience of unity. And so there needs to be that spirit in us, that desire for that. Okay? So, what happens if that isn't what happens? The brother or sister doesn't agree with you. Doesn't respond well. What do you do? Verse 16. But if he will not hear, if he's not responsive, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be Established. If he will not hear, if he's not agreeable, assuming you still believe that he has truly sinned against you, you see, you may go to someone and have this kind of confrontation and you may realize, well, I, you know, I I wasn't seeing things quite clearly and things are resolved at that level or the person does respond and forgiveness is granted and and all is is well and you leave that meeting and nothing else is said. It's it's behind you, forgiven, it's gone. You've released, both of you are released. You're not holding anything against one another. So assuming you still believe that he has truly sinned against you and does not see his sin, what should you do? Very simply, take one or two witnesses with you. This isn't complicated. Now, it's difficult, but it's not complicated. Now, this is the pattern that God gave 
back through Moses, really, isn't it? In fact, you see this repeated in the New Testament. Deuteronomy 19.15, One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. Jesus used that in his own ministry. He says, I don't testify of myself, my father testifies two witnesses see and my works testify and it was used by the apostle paul on a couple of different occasions at least this is a biblical god given principle and that's what jesus is invoking here this principle to establish the facts by two or three witnesses to evaluate the validity of the charge of sin Is this really sin? And then to evaluate the response of the one being charged. Have they responded in a way that fits the spirit of of Christ? Now, who should the one or two witnesses be? Some people think they should always be elders. Totally disagree with that. The one or two witnesses should... I think it's reasonable, though we aren't given details here, but it's reasonable to say it should be someone in the church, somebody who is because because the matter may have to go to the church. And so it should be witnesses that are within that church. Brothers, sisters in Christ in that church, they need to be godly minded persons, not persons that you necessarily get along with. You know, I like them. That's not the issue. It doesn't matter whether you like them or not. By the way, you're never, God never tells you to like anybody. He tells you to love. Does that bother you? You don't have to like somebody. It's nice to like people, but you must love. And there's a difference. But they need to be godly-minded persons. There needs to be a reputation for humility. Hopefully a church has Folk like that. They need to be ones who have a reputation for love and for integrity. Remember, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and he says, why do you go to the courts of the world? Don't you have people in your own church capable of judging between these problems? There ought to be people in the church who are qualified to serve as witnesses. So you take one or two. They become participants In the goal of slamming that brother or sister that you don't like. Right? Okay, thank you. Some of your faces showed me you're really listening. (laughs) No! No! They're participants in the goal of winning the presumed erring brother. Verse 17 says, And if he refuses to hear them, who's them? It's the witnesses. If they, if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. So the assumption is that these witnesses are, are functioning in the capacity of seeking to resolve the situation. And if they have concluded that the accusation is valid and the response is not right, they participate in addressing the person. 
The goal is still at this point restoration and reconciliation as it is through the whole process. But if he refuses. That indicates the real possibility that this sinning one remains obstinate, remains unresponsive. The spirit's bad. Something's wrong. So what do you do? Dust your feet off and move along. They're a lost case. No, there's one more possibility, opportunity, not just a step, but an opportunity in order to try to gain. Verse 17, but if he refuses even to hear the church, tell it to the church, but if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. This is the final attempt in the process or attempt at restoration. So the witnesses have established every word and concluded the sin is real. And yet the sinning brother refuses to acknowledge or respond favorably. And this is a big deal. The church is then informed. How is the church informed? He doesn't really say. He just says, tell it to the church. But I would assume with the development of what we see in Scriptures, probably through the elders, that the church is informed. In some way, however it is, the church is informed. And these witnesses, as well as the one who is who is saying that this sin has been against them, is making this known to the church. The church is informed that the brother refuses to acknowledge his sin and be reconciled. Again, even at this point, the goal is not kick him out. The goal is reconciliation, restoration. And so the church, listen to this, the church, and we'll emphasize maybe a little bit more next week this idea, but the church as one voice confronts the sinning brother. If he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, so the church speaks in some way. Again, the details aren't given. I believe there's some flexibility here as we work these things out in every local setting. And by the way, I think we flesh this thing out with prayer. And I'll say more about this next week, but prayer is huge. That's why you have in verse 19. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, he's not just, that's not just dropping a, you know, bombshell promise in the middle of this discussion. This has to do with the whole process. Prayer is involved. And, and the father, Jesus says, my father, my father is keenly interested as I am keenly interested in the next verse. He says, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, two or three, one or two witnesses that in the mouth of two or three, two or three are gathered together in my name. I am there in the midst of them. You see the flow of thought here. This is this is a church context. And so the. The church then, with one voice, they're in agreement. As they've worked through this in prayer, they're in agreement. They, con- they confront the sinning brother. And, and, and again, there's no, there's no method, there's no time frame given, time frame given. And so, 
Again, through prayer, walking in the Spirit. Church, we have the... Listen, walking in the Spirit is not just an individual thing. It's a church thing. We are a habitation of the Spirit of God. So we're talking about uh, the Spirit of the church here. Looking like Christ. Functioning. In relationship to everything, but this particular thing here. Dealing with a sinning, erring brother. And if he refuses, notice how, how it's translated here. But if he refuses even to hear the church. Now, some translations don't have it that way. I don't think the old King James does. But if he refuses even to hear the church. Why is that put in there? That's not the same word as here in verse 16. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more here. There is a prefix to that word used in verse 16, which seems to strengthen the issue. In other words, he doesn't even hear the church. Which is the authority of Christ on earth. He's not taking this matter seriously. He's ignoring God's authority. So it's gone beyond just simply he sinned and doesn't like it, doesn't agree, whatever. He's ignoring the voice of the church, which is in in essence of ignoring the voice of heaven, as I'll show next week from verse 18. So how should the unrepentant brother be treated? He should be treated in the way that he's acting. And he's acting like a heathen and a publican. A heathen and a tax collector. What does that mean? It means that he's acting like he's not part of the community. Jews would have known exactly what this meant. Because heathen, Gentiles, tax collectors, they were not part of the community. They were not received into the community. They didn't act like they were. They were treated as ones who were not part of the community. And so Jesus is saying that's the way this person should be acted because back to, should be treated because he's not acting like he's part of the church. He's acting in a very isolated way. I'm right, you're wrong. I'm not listening to you. So, he says, let him be to you. And that pronoun you there is actually singular thee. I think some think that he's saying just let him be to the one who is bringing the charge. I think he's talking to each individual member of the church. Not just collectively, yes, that, but each of you. Let him be to you. It's not that, you know, yeah, hey, listen, a lot of the church really, you know, treating you this way, but I'm a, you know, I'm a nice person and I'm not going to treat you this way. No, he's saying, you treat this person this way because what's at stake? 
There's a lot at stake. The testimony of Christ in the world. The, ex- the experience of unity in the church. As it says, as it says the, the expression of love. And so there's nothing more to say to this person until he repents. You've exhausted the measures under Christ to restore. So Jesus says, do not fellowship with him as part of the church. Doesn't mean he can't come to church. Don't fellowship with him as part of the church. In fact, I would suggest to you that if you're going to treat him like a heathen and a publican, how did Jesus treat heathen and publicans? Care for their, care for his soul like Jesus cared for publicans and sinners. Now, is this really necessary? Is this what we're reading here? Is this significant enough for us to take seriously? Jesus obviously says yes. And the more our hearts are filled with the love of Christ by the Spirit, we will be moved to relate to one another in this way. And that's the prayer of my heart for Community Baptist Church, is that we would be so filled and moved by the Spirit of Christ in us that this is the way that we would relate to one another in this church. And so should we sin against one another? Husband and wives, children, siblings, fellow members in the church, should we sin against one another? Don't ignore it. Don't excuse it. Cover it. That is, keep it small. Keep it close. Don't broadcast it. Cover it and confront it in love. And then once you've confronted it in love, cover it. If necessary, one or two. If necessary, the church. But don't have this little worm working in you that, you know, pity me kind of an attitude where i got to let other people know what I'm going through. No, you don't have to let other people know what you're going through. You need love. So be quick to grant forgiveness. And ask God by His Spirit, send me your Spirit, pour your love into my heart by your Spirit that would enable me to have that Spirit of forgiveness. Don't allow bitterness to grow in me. Too much of that in the church. There may be some of it here. I don't know. But it's a serious matter because it's a killer. It's a killer to your own life, spiritual life and otherwise. And it's a killer to the experience of unity and peace in relationships, in your family and in the church. And oh, how much brighter the light of Christ will shine in this world if we imitate Him in our relationships with one another. Amen? How much brighter. How much brighter. How much brighter. And so God...